Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland. And I'm Mr. Vosliatis. Today, in audio period 4-4 notes, part 2, we're going to be exploring westward expansion and how we are interacting with other people outside of our country. Here we go. Okay, so we're really going to focus on some of the conflicts that will emerge as a result of people continuing out westward expansion. I'm sure Mr. Copeland and myself have repeatedly um, taught, you know, thrown around the phrase manifest destiny. And this is going to be one of the biggest pressures to kind of push out and continually push out. And eventually, uh, the Louisiana territory will be eaten up and we're going to start to spill into other areas, particularly those dominated by other countries. The biggest territory will be Texas. Yes, so Texas, nicknamed the Lone Star Republic because when it wins its independence from Spain, it becomes its own sovereign nation. Most people assume that things just quickly went from one uh, country to another, and that country being ours. But first, they became their own territory. All right, so um, I spoke about it in class about the, the concept of the Texas culture is very unique because of who settled there. And uh, much of the motivation for independence in Texas was because of the American families that had migrated to this area. There were over 300 families that Stephen Austin had encouraged to move into Texas and begin this migration, mostly southern um, farmers looking for more territory and more land. Right? Um, Moses Austin is the man who requires huge land grant from the Mexican government, and that's when his son, Stephen Austin, encourages more to follow. And this is really caused by the fact that uh, land is scarce and the plantations are everywhere and so there's a natural spillover which starts to uh, happen in the 1820s. When we move on to the 1830s we start to see American farmers both white and some enslaved blacks outnumbering Mexican citizens in this territory by the number of three to one. So the irony here is that in this case, the Americans are the ones who are coming over the border, crossing into it and becoming immigrants to this new nation. And under the sovereignty of the Mexican government, it was largely understood that they would abide by Mexican rules and policies. For instance, by 1829, the Mexican government will respond to this growing friction between Mexican-Americans as well as Americans by passing a law that will require American Protestants to convert to Catholicism. At the time, the cultural differences between these two sects of Christianity are going to be one of the sources of tension between these settlers. And the Mexican government wants to make sure that there is going to be a way to mitigate these tensions. One of the things that we take for granted here is our practice of religion uh, being free and the Mexican country, the um, former colony and former territory of the Spanish, much different society where the entire country has the official religion of Catholicism. So those factors, as you mentioned, the cultural clashing largely, um, if there's one inherent right here that our country was started on, was the freedom of religion. So you understand clearly that these American Protestants are going to have a significant um, problem with having to 
feel um, Catholicism is pushed upon them. All right. So this is what leads the Mexican government to decide to close its borders um, to other American immigrants. And in doing this, you have this group of American um, people in culture and in spirit and in their mind that in many ways feel like they're behind enemy lines in a sense politically. So these land hungry Americans, they decide to cross over the border um, illegally. They decide to continue to, to move because land is what they're hungry for. Uh, and that is something that they would not stop just because a law was passed. Um, this is what leads to further uh, conflict between these two sides. It's important also to note that another law that uh, the Mexican government was going to uh, pass that will be uh, receiving the ire or the anger of these American settlers is also kind of restricting slavery. Very much like how the free soilers are going to be upset about how slavery lends itself to monopolizing large swaths of territory, the Mexican government is going to view slavery not only as a moral ill, but also as a way for white settlers, particularly Anglo-Saxon American settlers to take up vast majorities of territory at the expense of Mexican and poorer American settlers. Because of this, this is also going to be a huge position in which Americans are going to want to fight for their, quote, freedom, their freedom to run their property, the freedom to practice their own religion. In 1834, this, as mentioned, will be taken over, uh, the government will be taken over by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Anna will establish a dictatorship in Mexico, and it will abolish the federal system of government. Um, why do we mention him? Well, he's going to become the bad guy in this narrative between the settlers that are going to be disenfranchised and exploited under Mexican rule. What better way to kind of hoist the, 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 the flag of liberty and freedom and independence with a dictator? When Santa Ana attempts to enforce strict laws against the Americans, a group of settlers led by Sam Houston, you should probably remember his last name, Houston, Texas, will revolt and declare Texas to be an independent republic in 1836. And in the document we read in class, the um, Declaration of Independence for the state of uh, the Texas Republic, it mentions many of the same things that our declaration has, but uh, there's much less talk about the legal means in which we addressed our grievances to the federal, to the British government and how over long periods of time we had these taxes imposed on us. This was much more aggressive because of the fact that it was... Um, a situation where we had the ire of military control and a dictatorship that they were trying to fight off of. And he references the favoritism towards the military and the favoritism to the power that be in the Catholic Church, the priests that uh, draw a lot of the ire of these freedom-loving people. And again, it's not hard to connect the language that we've seen in revolutionary time to King George III to Santa Ana. But at the Battle of San Jacinto River, Houston's forces managed to actually capture Santa Ana. Uh, he was actually, him and his forces were caught by surprise. Uh, there's some stories or reports of Santa Ana even falling asleep and opening up to the sword point to these rebel forces. And he will literally be forced to sign a treaty recognizing Texas independence from Mexico. The problem is, when the Mexican legislature will later be established and reject not only Ana, it will reject the treaty that Ana signed. If the Mexican government is now reestablished to be a republic, Anna was a dictator. The way these Mexican officials look at it is that you signed a treaty with a dictator. We no longer uh, validate and recognize his authority. And so far, the treaty of that has been signed is invalid. However, the rebels, the Texans, will insist that they are, in fact, an independent republic. So, moving forward, we have to look at the annexation of Texas and how it becomes a state 
in our United States. And an important fact to understand is that annexation was initially denied. Why? Because of the same political factors and the same arguments that have been be, uh, being made since the Missouri crisis, right? The, the balance of power within the Senate, the balance of power within the government would drastically be shifted if a large swath of, swath of land known as the Texas Republic becomes the state of Texas in our union in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, things would be wildly shifted to, towards the power of the South. So the Northern uh, legislators had incredible opposition to this idea. So Jackson and Van Buren, wanting Texas to join our union, realized it might be not worth the risk politically. So um, the appeal to the U.S. government for annexation was made by Sam Houston, the original president of Texas. And because of this, um, it is something that our political system wasn't ready for, and it took almost a decade later before they could become part of our country. However, with uh, the political reality of England trying to get its hands on Texas, as well as the efforts of pro-slavery or pro-expansionist Democrats in the House and the Senate, President Tyler is going to try to navigate around the sluggish legislative process to get Texas annexed. However, it will be chiefly thwarted in the Senate by 1844. So, instead of passing it as a treaty, which would require two-thirds majority within mm -hmm. the Senate, right? That's how usually annexation process would work. It would be a treaty between two different countries. Because keep in mind, Texas is its own country. So Texas would have to have a treaty that would authorize giving up their sovereignty to be absorbed into the nation. Mm -hmm. So instead of going through the two-thirds majority of the Senate, Tyler with the help of his acolytes, will issue a joint resolution that will be rammed through Congress, and it will be signed and delivered to Texas on the last day of his presidency. The reason why a joint resolution much more favorable of an option is because you just need a simple majority right. for that to go uh, pass through. So um, as Taylor leaves, he does this on his very last day in office, and then leaves really James K. Polk, the president-elect, He's the man in office who's got left to handle Mexico's reaction and uh, disappointment or frustration or anger to the annexation. So um, quickly to recap the election of 1844 that we just referenced. Well, it's important to know where does James Polk come from? Exactly. So one of the things that's interesting during this time period, we talked about the fight of expansion, uh, similar to the Missouri crisis, the balance of power within Congress, um, the Democratic Convention the decision on who they're going to nominate for their next candidate for presidency is split. Half of the party, the northern section of the party, who oppose the annexation of Texas, support Martin Van Buren. The other half, John C. Calhoun, the man from the nullification crisis down in South Carolina, he is the man that they support who is a proponent of annexation of Texas. The Southerners support him. So with the split of the party, they end up getting a different candidate. That's James K. Polk. He's from Tennessee. He's a lesser-known candidate. Often these type of characters are referred to as a dark horse candidate. They come out of nowhere to take the nomination. And he is has a very simple message. And he is committed to American expansionism. Manifest destiny is his credo. Um, he is a man who champions this slogan of 54-40 or fight, which is the latitude at which he believes the border between Canada and the United States should be. Um, this is how uh, he wins the nomination of the Democratic ticket. The Whigs, the Northern Party in this time period, they nominate our old compromiser, Henry Clay. But because of the fact that he's waffling so often on this issue of Texas, he loses favor 
and only an isolated group of New York Whigs are left in this party who support him. Um, and they end up supporting the anti-slavery Liberty Party. So he does not get the, ele the electoral votes needed to win the election. And that is how James K. Polk is elected to the presidency. Now, when we talk about the Polk administration, it is going to be chiefly eclipsed by the war with Mexico because he's going to be responsible for inciting conflict with Mexico in order to maintain uh, the, 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 the newly acquired Texas. Yeah, well, a man campaigns on expansionism. You could see how right. Mexico is going to be frustrated with the fact that he is claiming the Republic of Texas as our God-given right because of his belief in Manifest Destiny. So basically, it's the, the war starts over a border dispute between the Mexican government, who already, by the way, does not recognize the forced treaty of Santa Ana, recognizing the sovereignty of Texas to begin with, so they view this as all invalid and null. Mm -hmm. But Polk decides to send a man named John Slidell, an envoy or a messenger to Mexico City, the capital, to persuade the government to sell California and New Mexico as territory to the U.S. and to settle this Mexican-Texas border dispute. Slidell's mission, in short, fails. Mexico refuses to sell the territories. They're almost insulted by the prospect of recognizing Texan sovereignty as well as the United States' ownership of Texas and selling any more territory and insists that the border of Texas-Mexico will fall along the Nueces River. Slidell, in return, will assert the border is along the Rio Grande River, the current border that we have today with Mexico. While Slidell is negotiating, Polk will send General Zachary Taylor and his troops to move and defend what they think is the border along the Rio Grande. This is where it gets interesting. Because of the um, disagreement over which border is real, the American troops are standing there thinking that they're on American territory. The Mexicans clearly think, you have already crossed the border. This is in violation of, of our war. sovereignty. This is an action of war. It's an aggressive action. So um, the thing is, did they really know that they were in the wrong spot and were kind of willfully ignorant of it? Because in many ways, people are accusing the president, Polk, of basically trying to incite violence, antagonize the Mexicans. Because the Mexican army captures a U.S. Army patrol and kills 11 of our soldiers. This is in April of 1846. So coincidentally, this is used by him. You'll see later on the similarities to this in the 20th century about how we justify larger military action by small skirmishes. But this incident is a justification of going to war. And Congress falls for it. Or agrees with it. Well, not all. Some Whig congressman, especially young Abraham Lincoln, sees this as a stunt mm -hmm. to acquire territory and to expand the institution of slavery. However, as Mr. Copeland mentioned, despite some of these initial suspicious motives, a large majority of both houses will approve the war resolution. We have to mention that our boy, Henry David Thoreau, the transcendentalist that we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. will be so upset by Polk's antagonism that he's going to stop paying taxes as a protest. Remember civil disobedience? People like Henry David Thoreau are going to operate on thinking that Polk is really doing something unjust and they don't want to pay taxes to a government that would be later used to fund this unjust war. His conscience couldn't live with his money going to fund this war. Because of that, Henry David Thoreau will rot in a jail cell for the remainder during this wartime and he will do his time gladly. The war kicks off. And while this is happening, President Polk sees this as an opportunity to take some territories that Mexico is currently controlling. 
specifically California, New Mexico, and Arizona. One of these men, John C. Fremont, uh, that plays a significant role, he moves into Northern California and overthrows the Mexican government there and declares it an independent republic. That is why we, re we refer to California as the uh, Bear Republic. Eventually, two years later, um, the Mexico will admit defeat and with the Treaty of Guadalupe de la Hago, uh, the U.S. diplomat Nicholas Trist and Mexican diplomats will agree to the following terms. Mexico will recognize the Rio Grande River as a border between Mexico and Texas. The United States will take possession of California and New Mexico and will give $15 million to the Mexican government in exchange. However, the U.S. will assume responsibility for any type of legal claims that American citizens had against Mexico during this war. Some of the Whigs in the North opposed this treaty because of their concern for the expansion of slavery. On the other hand, you have some of the Democrats who oppose it simply because it did not include all of Mexico. It's like you only got a piece of it. We wanted the whole thing. So this treaty, uh, while there is opposition on both sides in a certain sense, was nevertheless, it was ratified in the Senate which would required a two-thirds. Shortly acquiring all his territory, a Pennsylvania congressman named David Wilmot is going to propose an amendment that will really infuriate the Democrats in the Senate. And it's going to be basically an appropriations bill that will prohibit slavery from all the new territories acquired from Mexico. This will be passed twice in the House, but it will be defeated in the Senate. Westward expansion will be renewed to the sectional debate about slavery. So we typically use the Mexican War as a, one of the causes of the Civil War. And this would be referred to as the Wilmot Proviso. Um, it makes sense that it's defeated in the Senate because of the balance of power, whereas the population in the House um, makes sense that the representation favors the uh, bill that it would be prohibiting the spread of slavery. So now we have to think about further expansion. As we look to the North, we have the state of Maine, which was added at the same time as the Missouri Compromise. But in the 1840s, a dispute breaks out between uh, the territory of Maine and British Canada's province of New Brunswick. So one of the things that happens is it's a clash over disputed territory along the border. Um, it's specifically referred to as the Aroostook War or the Battle of Maps in terms of where the border should be drawn. And one of the things that this is settled by is it's settled between Daniel Webster and Lord Alexander Ashburton. And this is in 1842. It's simply known as the Webster-Ashburton Treaty basically establishes the modern-day border between Maine and Canada. It also settles where our Minnesota territory is uh, bordered as well. Largely, this is important because of the natural resources, specifically the iron-rich Mesabi Range on the U.S. side. This will be utilized by people like Andrew Carnegie later in the, the tail end of the 19th century to kind of start uh, creating steel using the Bessemer process, which utilizes iron and injects uh, hot heat and oxygen into it, uh, creating a new alloy known as steel. Um, other territories are going to be a main source of contention. We've mentioned this briefly previously, but the, the territory of Oregon will be claimed by four different nations during this time, Spain, Russia, Great Britain, and the United States. Of course, Spain will give up its claim in the Adams-Dayonese Treaty, the one in which we secured Florida, but Britain will have a profitable Hudson Fur Company, which will kind of continue its influence there. However, by 1846, less than 1,000 British will be settled north of the Columbia River. So despite the fact that they legally own it, there are not a lot of settlers there. The U.S. will base their claim on this territory on a few things. In 1792, 
Robert Gray and American will discover the Columbia River. By 1804-1806, Lewis and Clark Expedition, Americans will start to map out this area. By 1811, there will be fur trading posts in Astoria, Oregon. And by 1840s, there will be something known as the Oregon Feeler, uh, Fevers, and similar to the Gold Rush in California. 5,000 Americans will settle south of the Columbia River. By 1844, Americans believed it was their right to claim Oregon. So because of the the, the, the new migration and uh, commercial activity that a lot of Americans are going to enjoy on otherwise isolated property run by the British, they're going to argue that there are some claims to, to Oregon. The United States and Great Britain will actually kind of agree to split the territory along the 49th parallel in the Oregon Treaty of 1846. This will give Vancouver Island to Great Britain, remember, Great Britain is very navy rich, and they really utilize and use islands to their advantage. And Great Britain will also be allowed to navigate the Columbia River, despite the fact that we now own uh, the, the the Oregon Territory that we we have today. Now, the Vancouver has a very important port as well, which helps Britain trade in the Pacific uh, across towards Asia. Um, now, when we think about the um, further expansion of the, our territory, at a certain point. There's nowhere left to go as we get all the way to the western coast. So the Ostend Manifesto specifically outlines a justification for America to not move further west, but to look towards the southeast. And that is for us to purchase Cuba, the island of Cuba, from Spain, and, if necessary, take it by force. The reason for this, well, nutrient-rich climate for sugarcane, which is an incredibly um, lucrative crop. So... President Polk offers to purchase Cuba from Spain for $100 million when Mexico was only 15. And the Southern Adventurers led an expeditionary force out there to take Cuba by force, but Spanish are able to capture the Southerners and execute them. So it is much later on when Cuba becomes contention between us and America, but at this point it remains under the um, control of the Spanish. And, and although it was a failed attempt to acquire Cuba, it does show how land-hungry Americans were during this time, and it goes as far as saying that Polk is even tacitly endorsing this small, again, unofficial force of P- Americans to go and take over islands. Uh, the Walker expedition is also very similar. In 1853, a man named William Walker will try to take the Baja region in California from Mexico. Again, this is unauthorized by the United States government. Uh, By 1855, Walker will briefly take over Nicaragua, him and a bunch of slave plantation owners. 1856, the United States government will temporarily recognize Walker's own regime, much like how the United States will recognize the the Texas Republic. And then by 1860, there will be a coalition of Central American authorities that will invade Nicaragua and execute Walker. Again, unauthorized by the United States government, but this just shows you the steps and how land-hungry particular individuals are willing to expand beyond our borders. And we'll reference this in the the second half of the 1800s when we talk about how Manifest Destiny culminates with the American government um, uh, expanding, imperializing. Yeah, expanding all the way to the Pacific Coast. Now, where do we go next? And like you mentioned, imperialism that you learned about last year from a European sense and a world sense becomes what America does next, which is where are the islands that we can go? What territories can help us expand economic power and financial power? Now, other things that are going to stop United States expansion to the South Americans for now is also other countries, particularly Great Britain. 
have we discussed, the Monroe Doctrine mm-hmm. is going to be enforced by the British Navy. So there's something to stand that we have to check U.S. foreign U.S. influence in this region. So the Clayton Bulwer Treaty is an agreement between the U.S. and Great Britain that neither side would take quote exclusive control of any future canal in Central America. At the time, the pe- the reason why Central America was so key not only for its resources but its geographical location, the United States would always like to have the ability to unite the eastern coast with the western coast the 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 land acquired by the western coast would really profit by the eastern markets and going across the country seemed to be very overwhelming so the idea of using or building a canal to kind of pass under uh or uh, between south america and north america would have been better for some commercial interests but again clayton bowler treat is seen as uh, the united states and great britain being rivals but they're now cooperating and some historians have suggested the reason why we cooperate with great britain and we basically strong arm mexico as a government is because of similar language and culture we're at the end of the day both anglo-saxons and yes. we both appeal to that sense of superiority that mexican leaders and governmental officials do not Mm-hmm. So that's something to take in account when we talk about diplomacy between countries. Definitely. And um, where we see this continued is in the Gadsden Purchase. So in 1853, um, having gotten the entire territory of Texas for $15 million, Mexico agrees to sell the rest of its territory, which is now currently the continental U.S., for $10 million. Basically, the southern sections of present-day New Mexico and Arizona. And the reason why this is significant is because it's incredibly uh, nutrient and uh, resource-dense areas of where they can have silver mines and gold mines in this territory in New Mexico and Arizona. So that is why it's sought after by the Americans. Um, And this uh, continues with the settlement of the Western territories. Now that all of this is America, we now need to inhabit it and settle it. So between the 1850s and 1860s, we have the territory between Mississippi Valley and all the way to the Pacific Coast known as the Great American Desert. California and Oregon are settled already but they're settled before the Great Plains region. Everybody is just going through the Great Plains to get to the Pacific. So what's unique is this um, American desert slowly, but over time starts to be inhabited as we move west. And this is one of the things that we are addressed here with the Congress creates what is known as the Preemption Acts of 1830s and 1840s, basically gives squatters the right to settle public lands, which basically means if you go and just settle down, you have the right to take it. And why you would do this? Well, if you get there first, you're going to purchase it for the lowest price possible. The government could put them up to sale. So um, the old story of the Oklahoma Sooners rushing out there, and the reason why the University of Oklahoma's nickname is the Sooners is because the time when you could go and settle and be a squatter and technically say, this is our territory, we were here first, some people left too soon. (laughs) So those Oklahoma Sooners are the ones that first... Uh, settle that territory and this happened all throughout the West where people quickly were rushing to sit and rope off their land and say this is all of ours. And quite literally in some cases they are going to be races like there will be a starting line and they will have a certain like you know uh, time and there will be a gun will go off and then you have all your horses rushed to any parcel of land and sometimes land disputes will end in knife fights and gun fights and it was a very unruly thing and this type of unruly culture is going to be uh, romanticized later on with the the western tales and the the, the old um you know 
Western movies. Yeah, stories of and cowboys and, and cowboys rebels and, and right. taking what is yours. So what the government eventually realizes is we need to make it a little bit easier for settlers to um, settle out there by offering just parcels of land rather than making it a free-for-all. So they would make the um, settlers offer them about small settlements of about 40 acres at a time. And despite this opportunity, the westward trip continually became a middle-class movement because you needed to have the funds to sponsor these type of movements and prepare with all the supplies to survive. And please keep in mind that when we get to the tail end of the 19th century, most of the land that will be offered will not be offered to individual citizens. It will be largely kind of roped off and reserved for large corporate interests. And we will talk about how the government will cooperate with private industries um, at, and to some extent at the expense of American citizens later on in the Gilded Age. And one of the other things to consider is the way in which our government systematically offers land up to citizens, but not citizens of color. 1848, gold is discovered in California. That brings on the following year, the gold rush occurs. 1849, San Francisco 49ers, that's the name. Mass migration of California, the get rich quick scheme, American dream, this is my chance, I'm gonna head out there. So there's not an interest in settling, it's just get to the coast. Coastal cities such as San Francisco begin to thrive on the basis, basis of servicing these gold miners. Certain towns start to develop on the way out there to service these people traveling. Yeah, and as a result, because there's no longer gold to extract, they will quickly become ghost towns. And this is a term used to describe people that just leave, quite literally leave everything, including buildings themselves, to only a smaller, very small, almost non-existent population. So again, it really has to do with the resources and the amount that are in. But coastal cities like San Francisco will continue to thrive because it's geographical location. Now, with the um, economy at this moment, we start to see a rapid expansion. Uh, before 1840, the industry was mainly just concentrated in New England. But the entire industrial Northeast starts around this moment. After 1840, it starts to spread all the way throughout what we now know as the Rust Belt. So, new industries, largely all surrounding the development of the railroads and systems of communication. We have the Morse code and other things that play a vital role in connecting the country in terms of communication um, along um, telegraph lines. So, the rapid expansion of the rail line, in many ways, I've heard it referred to as the railroads were the internet of the 1800s. It right. helped connect the country and it. rapid uh, communication was possible. Transportation helps the economy. Time is money. The faster you can move people and goods and services, the faster the economy can move itself. So we have a railroad line that goes all the way throughout the Northeast and expands into the Midwest. And that's why the railroads become the largest U.S. industry to date. Why? Because the constructions of railroads require immense amounts of capital, money, and investment, and labor, um, which will also kind of give rise to uh, large swaths of immigration from the East as well as the West Coast. But it will also give rise to a complex network of business organization, the formation of trusts, the, uh, the bigger uh, banking interests start to kind of take over. Investment as an industry starts to have uh, more of a nuanced um, gone are the days of just a simple uh, one person giving a lot of money, cutting a check to investment. There might be a pool of investors kind of like teaming up to have large scale projects being done. Local and state governments will facilitate this growth. Of, of railroads and systems of communication by offering loans and tax breaks on to railroad companies. Uh, by 1850, the United States government will grant 2.6 million acres of federal land to build the Illinois Central Railroad from Lake Michigan to the Gulf of Mexico. 
many ways you can look at this. The federal government saw this as an investment. When we're going to give the corporations a tax break or an incentive to do a certain project, the entire country would benefit from the railroad. The economy would benefit from the railroad. So the interests of the country and the corporation are aligned, and that's why they would grant them federal land to do these um, projects. The railroads really unite the commercial interests of the North and the Midwest, and that is what's so important of, about them. So this concludes our period 4-4 notes. Uh, we'll be coming back next time to talk about period 5 and the movement towards the Civil War. See you next time.